Welcome to the Haskell Cast. I'm Rain Hendricks with Chris Forno. Our guest is Ollie Charles. Ollie is a Haskell developer at Finder and previously at Music Brains, a former Perl developer and the author of the wildly popular 24 Days of Hackage. He blogs at ocharles.org.uk. Welcome, Ollie. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So we usually start with a bit of a, a Haskell origin story. So why don't you tell us how you got involved with Haskell? Sure. It's uh, it's not a particularly clear story to me. Uh, the earliest memory of Haskell goes back, I think, maybe three or four years. Uh, and I think I was reading the Learn Your Haskell book. And it all seemed to make a reasonable amount of sense and seemed a little alien from my background of Perl and stuff. Like the syntax was very different. Uh, but we got on to the chapter on applicative parsers and stuff. Uh, and at the time, I was doing a lot of work with org mode in Emacs. Uh, and I wanted to have a way to index my org mode files. So I thought, well, this seems like a pretty good first kind of project to do with Haskell. I can write a parser for org mode. Uh, and that seemed pretty trivial. You know, I could write a parser for org mode in Perl quite easily. But that was a good couple of months of Haskell to actually figure out how on earth all of this stuff combined, how to use Parsec and stuff like that. But when I actually got to the solution at the end, I was just amazed at how clear this language was. Like the parser that I wrote was maybe, it was only five lines. It was a subset of Orgmag, but it was so clean and so clear of what it was doing. Uh, And from then on, I was completely hooked on Haskell and I knew that I had to learn more about it. Um, And then from there, I, you know, uh, I had a background in doing web programming. So that seemed like a logical next step. And I moved on to the Snap framework. Uh, and the more and more I spent doing Haskell and seeing all of these kind of day-to-day bugs that I'd normally have with Perl and other languages, they just didn't happen anymore. You know, we have this type system that does so much. And I just became convinced that this was, you know, the right way to be to be writing code. How much time did you devote to uh, studying Haskell? Because going going from a few years back picking it up to talking with us on this podcast and having a, a popular series of blog posts on it, <laughs> Um, it's quite a feat. Um, well, I certainly have a lot of free time, <laughs> so uh, uh, it's hard to yeah, it's hard to really quantify how much time I did spend. Uh, it, it certainly varies. You know, if I find an interesting problem, then I I just can't put it down until I find the solution. Uh, but then there'll be other periods where I don't really feel like doing any programming other than you know my my day to day job. But yeah, I mean, it, it was probably just kind of continually really thinking about this. And every time I encountered problems in work when I wasn't writing Haskell, I'd go back and think, hmm, maybe I can reformulate this problem in Haskell and see if it comes out in a cleaner solution or a, maybe a more a safe solution or something like that. So you ended up writing a lot of Haskell code. Did you read much also? Uh, I definitely started in, in Haskell uh, thinking that I should probably be reading some well-established projects, but... There wasn't a huge amount, uh, even going back like four years. I think things have changed rapidly in the last couple of years. But uh, a lot of people were like, oh, you should read the Xmonad source code. That's a well-established project. Or maybe read the Dart source code. But I really couldn't make much sense of these. I mean, they're, they're big projects, even if they only kind of do one thing and do, do this one thing very well. They're still big projects that sprawl over many files. And that was too much for me to understand. And I don't really learn too well by reading other people's code. I need to have these ideas and really kind of play with them and see how they feel when I actually try and code them myself. So uh, I usually I usually try and emulate other people's code more than, more than, more than read the code, I guess. So you're saying that uh, most of your learning was was driven by a need to implement something rather than sort of exploring and, and reading. But uh, what about, I mean, the 20, we'll get on to the 24 days of hackage. And I, I don't want to jump into that too soon because I think people really uh, will be interested in how you learned and picked up Haskell. But uh, did was that written based on the experience you'd already had or did you go out there looking for libraries to write about? Uh, the first year was very much these are libraries that uh, I had already been using. Um, so I think a lot of those are fairly obvious libraries to most Haskell programmers now. Uh, the second year, however, when people asked me to do it again, I'd kind of exhausted my, my pool of libraries that I use normally. So that was very much a learning experience of picking up libraries that I wouldn't normally have to uh, have to learn about. Do you think that that, that second year was a, was a worthwhile, if, aside from blogging and, and helping others, do you think it would have been worthwhile to do that uh, just to find out what's out there? 
Absolutely. I mean, some of the libraries, uh, Extensible Effects stands out especially. Uh, this was a library that I was kind of aware of. I had the paper lying around and I'd, I'd wanted to do something with it, but I didn't really have any reason to pick it up. You know, we, we were using Monad Transformers and Stacks at work already, so we certainly weren't going to be using it there. But that gave me a nice, I don't know, personal excuse to actually give this library a shot and see what I could do with it. So you said that the first year you were using libraries that you already had experience with. Would you say that there's, of those 24, there's probably like a, a tale of, there's probably a few that you use every day. Are there, any, do you want to pick any particularly that you just find you always uh, have a need for? Hmm, let me, let me get the blog up and have a look. Uh, so, I mean, there's definitely some that I use constantly. Uh, obviously, I mean, I started 24 Days of Hackage with Cabal, and Cabal is certainly used hundreds of times every single day because that's how we're doing all our building. Um, I, I do a lot of web programming, so Snap and the various kind of ecosystem around Snap are certainly uh, very much uh, libraries that I use all the time. And then Lens and ASIN, Transformers and things like that are kind of bread and butter libraries and how I put these things together. Uh, but then, I mean, there's a lot more there that I certainly don't use uh, in day-to-day -day programming. Uh, you know, free penny GUI, Scotty, extensible effects, as I mentioned, uh, memo combinators and stuff were libraries that I I still don't think I've actually really used in, a, in any work code, but I'm kind of aware of these techniques a little bit more now. Uh, were there any libraries from uh, last year's that you did start using? Uh, Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, we're using WebSockets at work, um, and I guess that's why I chose to write about WebSockets, because I was actually using this. Um, and things, there are things in last year's that I'm, I'm not really using regularly, but I certainly picked up between the previous 24 days of Hackage and uh, had played around with them a little bit more. Um, but I guess, yeah, our, our kind of library stack has not really changed too much. There are some well-established libraries that really solve a huge amount of problems and in fact like you know a large amount of our problems can probably be phrased in terms of these tools so are you still using scotty uh nope that was purely there because i've been recommending scotty to a lot ah. of people who were new to haskell and said you know I, I i spend most of my time doing web programming or i'd like to do web programming can i do this in haskell and you've got kind of obvious answers of yeah sure go ahead and use esol or use snap but that's that's quite a learning curve for somebody who's still very new to this language and is still, you know, the syntax alone feels alien. So I, I really like Scotty because it's got this very, very kind of minimal API and it's very declarative. Um, and it's also nice for a beginner to learn. But that said, I, w I was recommending this library to a lot of people and I hadn't actually used it myself. So I thought I should probably kind of put my money where my mouth is and do a blog post about it. Um, but I'm not really using that for any work things because still, even if it's a small web server that I need to spin up, I can throw that together in Snap pretty quickly as well. Um, so I tend to just stick with using Snap. So why Snap versus Yesod? Uh, I don't really have a rational reason, I guess. I mean, I started with Snap because that's just what I started with, and it's never really got in the way, slowed me down in any way. Uh, I haven't needed anything that I couldn't do with Snap. So because I haven't had a reason to move away from it, I've simply stuck with it. And USOD has a lot of really nice benefits in terms of its type safety, but I've found that I can get a large amount of these benefits in Snap as well, because, I mean, Snap is quite unbiased, I think, in the way that it lets you put programs together. So, for example, if I want type-safe routing, well, I can just use something like WebRoots, Boomerang, or something, or just make my own routing combinators, uh, and I can get that type safety. Um, so for that reason, Snap has kind of grown quite nicely with me. Um, so I haven't had any need to move away from it. And what would you miss giving up Snap and writing something in Scotty? Hmm. I guess I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I really like what uh, Snap has with Snaplets. So that's kind of nice for just being able to drop in things like, uh, oh, I need a Postgres connection so I can use Snaplet Postgres Simple, or I need a Redis connection so I can drop that in. Uh, so that's already quite a nice kind of vocabulary to talk about composing web applications. And I get configuration files and I get logging and stuff out of the box. I get an authentication system. But that said, the authentication system and stuff that come with Snap, we're not actually using anyway. We still have written our own authentication system because I kind of like to do that in my own way. And I have my own opinions on how authentication should work. So 
I guess uh, all I'd be giving up is the fact that I'm already really familiar with this library and I don't really have to think about how to use it because the API is just so natural to me now that I've been doing it for so long. You mentioned we a lot. Is this uh, the group of developers you work with at Finder or uh, a different group? Yeah. Uh, so at the moment, I'm working for a London-based startup called Finder. Uh, I joined them in October last year, I believe. And we're using Haskell almost entirely throughout the stack. So we've got our kind of uh, a library that interacts with the database in Haskell. And then we have our web uh, API also written in Haskell. Uh, so, yeah, that's the, the we that I'm referring to there. Is there anything you can share about this, the size, scope, complexity, um, um, way of working uh, in your Haskell group? Um, so there are, there's me, uh, Ben Ford and Renzo Carbonara, uh, are the Haskell programmers. Uh, and in terms of code base, it's, it's pretty small, really. Um, I think our main library, which is called Finder, is about 70 modules. A lot of those modules are really just a kind of data type and maybe a couple of functions on that data type. So we tend to split things apart quite aggressively. And then we've got our web API, which is called Metronome. And that is, uh, that's, that's really tiny. That's like six modules, I think. So we're really, there's not a huge amount of code there. Um, which I guess is one of the nice things of Haskell. You don't have to write a lot of code to get a lot of functionality. Was there a reason for choosing it other than that's what uh, you guys preferred to write in? Or is there a particular strength that you find, uh, in the type of work you're doing? Uh, so we were originally, uh, contracted in to be Python developers. Um, but Ben, who was the first person who got contracted in, had Python experience, but uh, had a little bit of Haskell experience as well, and felt that, you know, there wouldn't really be a huge gain in writing this um, in Python, and felt we could get a lot more um, safety in writing it in Haskell. We could probably get something that's more general. Um, you know, these are long-running servers that need to be up and running for a long time, so we'll probably get more safety if we wrote it in Haskell. Uh, and sold it to the founders of the company basically on, on that premise. And they, they seem to be quite willing to go with it. They're not technical people. So they trusted us in our technical decisions. So, uh, yeah, we, we switched from a, from being a Python job to a Haskell job. And I'm, I'm not a Python programmer, so I'm fine with that. There's a social component, right? You have to find Haskell developers that, that are available that can work on this, that are, you know, within their, their budget. Has that been a challenge? You've got three now. What has it been like finding developers to work with? Well, it's actually kind of super easy to find developers for Haskell, which is a bit paradoxical because you think this is a tiny community. It's probably going to be very hard to hire and how to, to actually find people who are going to write Haskell. But in reality, there's, there's a huge amount of people writing Haskell constantly who are just dying to actually do this as their day job. I mean, I was one of those people. I had a background in writing Perl and I, I just couldn't bear to write any more Perl. I needed to be writing Haskell. So we haven't had any trouble hiring people at all. In fact, every time we've, we've gone out to do hiring, uh, we just get a ton of extremely high-quality applications. And uh, I guess the difficult part is actually filtering that down and making a choice. So, so far, we seem to be doing okay. You know, when maybe, you know, in a couple of years, if we do extremely well and we're suddenly scaling up to needing, like, 50 developers, maybe things will be a little bit more, more different. But, um, you know... I, I really don't know what the future is going to hold there, but so far it's been extremely easy to get Haskell developers. And then what's it been like on the flip side as someone who's been looking for Haskell work? Uh, so, I mean, I kind of fell into the job. Uh, it, it was a quite a large element of luck, I think. Um, I'm in the London, London Haskell user group, and I knew Ben through that, and he, he'd mentioned to me that he was uh, working in the startup and he wanted to get some Haskell people in. And at the time, I was fairly uh, convinced that I didn't want to be writing Perl for the rest of my life. So it just happened to come around at the right time for me. But uh, that said, while I was thinking of moving away from Perl and writing some Haskell, there were a couple of other jobs posted on the Haskell Reddit. And, uh, you know, I've seen that a couple of times since I've had this job. It seems that there are more and more jobs going on this market. Uh, and that's that's a number that seems to be growing. So word of advice to our listeners, if you're looking for a Haskell job, get involved in your local Haskell or functional programming communities. Mm -hmm. And if there isn't one, yeah. maybe you could found one. 
Well, I think that's that's my best advice for people who do really want to get hired in this stuff is that you need to make yourself known and, and people need to know about you. Uh, I already had my blog going and I was writing about Haskell because I just cared about it so much before I even had a job in it, which I think has certainly helped me, you know, get my foot in the door in terms of making Haskell my career. But I think this is this is definitely not going to be a bad move if you want to be doing Haskell as your job. If you can get libraries on Hackage, if you can get your name known by having a really popular blog series, or maybe you can do some talks or something, or start a functional programming meetup group, these are all going to be extremely good decisions, I think, if you want to make this your career. Tell us a little bit about uh, your transition from Perl to Haskell. I mean, it, it sounds like you were using it up up until relatively recently, which, which makes you... Uh, one of the holdouts, uh, at least mm-hmm. from the perception of the pro, what the pro community is like nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I started writing Perl um, back in 2007, I believe, when I was at university. Uh, I joined Music Brains through Google's Summer of Code program, and I worked part-time while I was at university and then became full-time afterwards. And I think we accumulated about 250 million lines of Perl code, which is, I think... a Pretty Mil- million, two hundred fifty. Uh, sorry, uh, two hundred fifty thousand. Okay, two hundred fifty million would be impressive, and I, <laughs> then I would definitely want to move away from a pill code base. Yeah, yeah, uh, yes. Um, but it, it was growing. Uh, it, it, you know, it was growing pretty rapidly. It didn't look like it was approaching any type of kind of limit of where this code was going to be going. Um, and I just got fed up of seeing the same regressions coming in kind of every day. We had this two-week release cycle. We'd push out a bunch of really cool features. And then two weeks later, we'd push out more cool features. But those ones that we just released were already broken. And, you know, I felt like this language just wasn't helping me at all. Nothing was helping fit these components together. Nothing was really making sure that any of the code I was writing made any sense until I actually would run this code. And, you know, when you've got this much code and this many pages... You can't test all this stuff. And, and Music Brains is a team of uh, just, I think at the time there were two, maybe three of us as developers. We can't test all of this stuff. And we certainly aren't willing to write tests for all of this stuff as well because we've got pressure to actually release features. So um, as I learned more Haskell and became more confident in writing Haskell, I realized that a lot of these problems didn't even have to exist. Um, and... That just made me frustrated with Perl. And when I was doing my day-to-day job writing Perl, I, I knew that the code I was writing was just, it, it didn't have to be this way. And I was just frustrated all the time that I was having to kind of do all this work that the computer could be doing for me. But in terms of the progression from Perl, I, it was it was a little strange. I mean, Perl is kind of proud of itself for having the CPAN with so many libraries available. And if there's anything you want to do, chances are somebody else has already done that for you. And Hackage at the time, Certainly did a lot of stuff, but it didn't do everything. So there was times where I'd want to uh, have a library for something and it just didn't exist. Um, for example, I needed to interact with the Zopian search library for this org mode parser that I wrote originally, and that just didn't exist. So now I had to learn how to do, uh, how to build a kind of binding library and stuff. So it was certainly slower than writing Perl for a, for a uh, fairly significant period of my time, but I, I think I've got past that now. So Perl has a reputation for being a bit of a glue language, and you kind of mentioned something about that. Um, how does how does Haskell work in that in that role where you're connecting to different services and you're sort of um, trying to bring them together, especially in a deployment? Mm-hmm. Well, I think Haskell works even better for it because I mean, there's there's no need for all of these components to kind of have a universal interface or anything like that. They can they can sit in their own little systems if they need to, and then we just expose the types as interfaces. And as long as we can connect these types together, then we have a pretty good guarantee that the interfaces are going to connect well together as well. Uh, so even though Perl is kind of this glue language, I don't think it necessarily works too well as a glue language because there's no real ability for me to trust the system that I'm gluing together. I mean, it's... It's certainly given it's given me a lot of glue to actually apply to things, but there's no guarantee that I actually put the glue in the right places. Yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned kind of putting them together at the type level. Are you, are you meaning that these components you uh, you compile them together? Or are you talking about um, a different type of interface? Uh, so I, I like to 
Yeah, I like to connect things with types, which means that if you have some sort of untyped system, or certainly a type system outside Haskell, then we try to put a, some types on top of that as soon as we can. So at work, the database is a Postgres database, but we try not to really think of interacting with Postgres. So we have this library finder that I mentioned before, and the majority of that library is is sitting there in front of Postgres, providing a common API to actually talk to the database. So most of the programming that we're doing is working with this library, not directly with the database itself. So in that sense, we we try and strive for as much type safety uh, as we can get. So speaking of Postgres, uh, I see that you've been working on PL Haskell, which as opposed to all the Haskell libraries for interfacing with Postgres, this one is for actually writing Postgres scripts, um, procedures, presumably, in Haskell. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, what, that's right. Uh, yeah, what's your what's your motivation for doing it, and how do you see uh, using this? Uh, motivation was really, can this even be done? Um, because... Postgres is kind of, it's quite a nice database server in that it's very extensible. So uh, you can write Perl and Postgres if you want. You can write Python. You can write JavaScript. You couldn't write Haskell. So I thought, you know, is there a real reason that we can't write Haskell in here, or is it just because nobody's done it? So it was, you know, it was just a, a small kind of side project for myself, really, to see if this was possible. And it turns out that it is possible. Uh, I haven't done a huge amount with it, and I'm not entirely sure where I want to take it. Um, because part of me is not entirely sure if it's a good idea to be writing Haskell in the database itself. <laughs> yeah, um, I was I was just going to say that um, I, I, I imagine some people are cringing because they, they're just opposed to the idea of even using triggers or, or functions in mm-hmm. the database because, uh, you know, revision control and so on is is more difficult. Do you, do you make a lot of use of them or...? Uh, uh, Personally, I'm, I take a fairly controversial stance, and I really, really like having logic in the database because, to me, a database is a kind of canonical source of truth, and I need to be able to trust my databases as much as I can, which means I really want to offload as much processing as I can to the database because that's really where all the information is. But that said, um, at work, I've kind of held back a little bit on that viewpoint. We're not, I don't think we have any triggers or anything like that, so that's all done in the, the Haskell code itself. Uh, and I'm not sure, again, with PL Haskell and stuff like that, if I'm actually going to bring that to work. That was very much a proof of concept thing, and it seems that it does at least work, and I may continue with it at some point. But at the moment, I have no kind of real plans to take that anywhere. So you mentioned one of the things that really um, excited you about Haskell was type safety and the ability for type safety to prevent a lot of different bug cases that you would get in other languages. How have you seen that with uh, things like database interactions? What, what do you think of the current state of the art? I guess that would be things like Persistent and, es- and Esquilito in terms of type-safe mm-hmm. database interaction. Where do you think it's going to go? Are we missing something? What are your thoughts? We, we're absolutely missing something, uh, in my opinion. Um, the biggest source of bugs that we have at the moment and regressions is in our database queries themselves. So... At the moment, we're just using Postgres simple, and our queries are just strings, and obviously this doesn't compose. So not only does the code grow far more than it needs to because it doesn't compose, uh, it also, you know, we make mistakes all the time. So we, we fail to put in a space in the right place or something like that, and it's trivial things like this. Um, I really like the idea behind Haskell DB, but Haskell DB is still a little bit removed from the actual SQL that you'll be writing. And while Postgres is an amazing engine, I'm not entirely sure I want to be just throwing random kind of relational algebra statements at it and hoping that it does the right thing. I like to have a little bit more control. And ideally, I'd I'd want to be writing something that really does reflect the kind of SQL AST itself. Um, Things like Persistent and Escalito seem really, really nice. I I did find persistent a little bit opinionated for my liking. Um, it's not hugely opinionated at all, but I'm, I'm really like to have kind of full control of my database queries. And I think it kind of had some requirements on how you do primary keys and stuff like that. And I like to take the approach that primary keys don't make a huge amount of sense in that you can have multiple primary keys. So why choose one? Um, so I don't want to be forced into choosing a single primary key. Uh, so. There is definitely a gap. Um, Tom Ellis is working on a library called Opali at the moment, which is an Arrow-based version of Haskell DB, 
And it still uses Haskell DB for the actual query generation, but because it uses arrow syntax, I believe it gives you a couple more guarantees that you can't write completely malformed queries, which are apparently possible in Haskell DB. Um, but still, we're relying on Haskell DB for the generation, and we're still working with these kind of um, ideal relational algebra statements. So what I what I like is still saying it's even closer to writing SQL, which I guess is what Haskellito is. Um, but it's for some reason doesn't seem to be quite there for me just yet. So you mentioned using arrows uh, as a way to to construct queries in this new this new project. What do you think about the way that Haskell uses these various um, mathematical constructs or or tools? Uh, well, I, I'm a little bit biased because I'm currently an undergraduate student in mathematics at the moment. So I, I really like this kind of generality and abstraction. Um, it's certainly not something that is natural to me, though. Uh, like arrows took an awful long time for me to get familiar with. And I only got really familiar with them by actually working with them when I did my, my work with Netwire and FRP a while back. Could you, write, um, could you write more about arrows? I feel like arrows are a bit of a sore thumb in the Haskell abstractions. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're the one that doesn't really fit in very well. Maybe that's because we don't have a good ladder to build up to them. Like bifunctors are a part of that, but they were introduced much later. Yeah, well, this is something that does interest me because I have a lot of interest in practical Haskell, but I certainly have a lot of interest in this kind of more abstract theoretical side of Haskell. And I've heard a lot of people are not comfortable with arrows from a from a purely theoretical side, and I haven't entirely understood why that is because, I mean, there is a lot of theory behind arrows, and they are well-founded in category theory and stuff, to my understanding. Um, and they do work quite nicely in Haskell. I mean, arrow notation is... It's a little weird to get your head around, but once you do get your head around it and you kind of internalize the the syntax for it, um, it's not that bad to work with. Um, in terms of writing about them, um, I, I'd like to write more about FRP in general, so I'm hoping that maybe I can do a kind of longer series. It'll probably be with Netwire or something like that and arrowized FRP, so there'll definitely be more material about arrows in there. Let me let me jump in on the netwire and FRP. I, I saw that you wrote an implementation of asteroids, which was was quite well done. Um, it uh, it's a game though, which is what most FRP demonstrations are, and I think people have a bit of a hard time of thinking how they can apply it in in other domains practically. Have you done any work with that? Are you planning to? I'd like to, um, but unfortunately, I haven't really managed to apply FRP at work. Um, FRP fits very well with games because, I mean, you've got something running at a fixed frequency, you know, 60 frames a second, you generate the frame and you move on to the next one. And this works really nicely with uh, the kind of FRP frameworks that I've used, especially Netwire. But, I mean, when you're doing more graphic user interface programming, you don't really have a a fixed frequency. You wait for somebody to click a button or something and then you react to the button click. Um, And in that sense, I haven't found a nice way to do uh, any FRP with that. Uh, Netwire certainly is not going to be the right tool for that because it requires you to be working at this kind of fixed sample rate. Um, I've I've also, I mean, FRP, the the more I learn about it, the more it kind of sticks at the front of my mind and I'm trying to think in terms of uh, uh, modeling problems and kind of reactive behaviors and stuff like that. So at work, uh, every time we interact with the database, we accumulate events. And the idea here is you can read the stream of events back and maybe see the world in a slightly different viewpoint uh, at a later period in time. So if we forgot to kind of... So we we have the event stream, sorry, and we also have a snapshot database, which kind of summarizes the event stream. But if we've somehow forgot to put some information in this snapshot database, then we could always fold the event stream again uh, and maybe pull some more information out of it. And this feels very much like a kind of, at least the reactive uh, behavior part of FRP here. Like I have a stream of events and I want to kind of do some processing on them. So that, that feels like an element of FRP there, but I haven't quite managed to pull out exactly what that is and, and, and write anything kind of FRP related with it. Yeah, there's a an element of, of data flow programming in there, right? Which, right. Yeah, that's exactly it. And if you kind of, if you flip that, you get something where you're pulling, you know, you're pulling data. Mm-hmm. I remember yeah. I remember Martin Fowler talking a while ago about this idea of event stream based systems where 
the system is completely deterministic based on that event stream and you can replay as long as you have the event stream hanging around you can replay it through the system and get the same results and that was really good for testing i wonder if frp and haskell's already you know you know already has a lot of guarantees about determinism if that would make for some interesting ways to build data flow systems that were more testable mhm um yeah uh the kind of ideas of determinism in frp it seems really nice as well from a testing point of view you know you can just take the various transitions of states or something or the events that happened in the system and you start with this initial state and you could run these forwards and make sure that you actually end up at the state that you expect but that said i mean i haven't seen this actually applied anywhere um but it would be it would be nice if we could you know especially for really complicated things to test like graphical user interfaces if we could kind of marry these two concepts together i think we'd have a really nice framework yeah i'd like to jump in and if if this is perhaps an unfamiliar topic we're discussing frp or functional reactive programming which uh, i think still spends a lot of its time in the theoretical research realm but there was a good post on Ollie's blog uh with a nice youtube video that makes it uh gives it a lot more context uh, to understand mm-hmm. Well, I think the fun thing with the Asteroids project as well that uh, um, maybe I didn't emphasize enough when I wrote the blog post was that it's not just the game itself that's being done with FRP there. So the sound engine and how all the sounds are generated is done using Netwire as well. And that gives some really nice kind of code for doing these one-off little sound effects. So an explosion is just take this random noise, distort this random noise, fade it out over two seconds or something, and then maybe crush it down to eight bits or something. And it's just so declarative in, in, you know, I feel like I've simplified art a little bit <laughs> and then I've managed to encode what an explosion sounds like in a line of Haskell. But that was really interesting to me, like seeing that I could work with these really creative ideas. And when I'm freed from this imperative way of programming, uh, the kind of essence comes through a lot more. It makes me wonder if we're not on the verge of some sort of... Um renaissance in, in demo programming with, uh, you know, declarative small source code rather than a small binary size. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, there's definitely some sort of renaissance in, in the creative, in this, uh, the creative community around Haskell with the whole algorithm movement and stuff like that. And people writing really generative music in Haskell. I haven't tried any of that myself, but that looks extremely interesting. Um, maybe we can go back to, I think we, we didn't give enough attention to these 24 days of, of, uh, hackage, which maybe you're trying to put behind you, but whether you like it or not, we're going to, we're going to discuss it specifically. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, one of the things with Perl is that you have CPAN. Um, mm-hmm. how do you think hackage stacks up with it? I assume you, you spend a lot of time going through hackage, just looking at packages. So the comparison with CPAN is even closer to 24 Days of Hackage, I think, in that CPAN is is kind of the reason that 24 Days of Hackage came around. Because having spent so so much time in the Perl community, uh, every year they would always do advent calendars. And that was like a very normal Perl thing to do. And there's, I think, at least 10 advent calendars every year now. Uh, some very specific, focusing on web frameworks. Some do kind of more what I do, where they look at different libraries and stuff. And I hadn't seen this existing in the Haskell community. And found that a little bit kind of lacking and a little strange. Like, why is nobody proud of all of these libraries that they're writing? So I took the inspiration from CPAN and all the advent calendars in Perl and um, wanted to bring that over to Haskell. Um, and in terms of finding the libraries, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really like literally sit down and just scroll through Hackage, but there's some somehow there does seem to be a way to kind of connect the dots. You start with one interesting library and all of its build dependencies are right there. And maybe maybe there's a library that I've never heard of. So you click into that and then you end up in this whole other kind of section of hackage where there's a whole load of libraries doing different things that I'd never really thought about using. And that's really how I find most of my libraries, I guess, just kind of following the chain of what people are using and seeing where I end up. One of the things for me that's a bit difficult with Hackage is you don't get an idea unless you go look for it of how relatively popular or how often a certain library is being used, especially as a dependency of other libraries. So if you're selecting from you know five different libraries to do a certain task, one of them might be a de facto standard that's used 90% of the time. And you wouldn't have a way of knowing that unless you did you were able to build your own dependency graph query sort of thing. 
Mm-hmm. Do you do you have a way around that? How do you determine if you've got if you're comparing you know comparatively some some libraries comparing comparatively if you're comparing some libraries, yeah. how do you <laughs> figure out which one to use? How do you know which one is the best in class? It's really just a case of try it and see, I guess. Um, there's usually some sort of gut reaction that I get when I'm browsing the Haddox. Um, has the author of this library written a lot of documentation? Because if so, then they're probably quite proud of the library and they're willing to support it. Um, do the types kind of make sense? Do you know? Is there a small set of types and a nice kind of core to the library that it's all built around, or are they having to kind of invent lots of things that aren't kind of on the fly? That to me usually is a kind of worrying sign. Maybe maybe there's some sort of abstraction that was missed here. Um, but I guess there's kind of a good size to a good side to the fact that Hackage is still relatively small, and that even if there is a, a bunch of libraries doing the same thing, there's still only kind of a handful, and you can kind of enumerate the possibilities still and try each one out and see which one feels most natural for the problem that you're working on. So I just want to highlight a thing you said, which I think is really interesting. Uh, we've heard a lot of people on the cast talk about how uh, how much information the type system gives you about programs. But this is a new one, I think, that the type system or a, a library author's use of the type system can tell you something about the quality or the design of the library itself. Not even reading the implementation, but just looking at the types and seeing if they seem cohesive. That's I think that's really mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, and we actually um, kind of applied this idea only a couple of days ago at work. So we're looking to use Selenium to drive uh, some tests on the on the actual website that we're building. And there's the WebDriver library in in Haskell. I think it's called WebDriver. Uh, and I sat down with my colleague, and we were like, right, we we've never used this library before. We have a rough idea of what it's going to be doing. It's going to drive Selenium. Uh, so so where do we start? So, I mean, all I do with these things is I open up the first module that I see and I kind of look for something that looks like it's going to be useful, like run or something like that. And that takes a WDA action. Well, that looks like it's going to be some sort of monad. So what can I construct that will give me WD values? And you kind of just follow this process of like, I need to end up here. So how can I get there? Um, and if you've got a small amount of types, then it's it's a lot easier to work how you're going to get there. Whereas if you have lots of types and it's unclear how these things are going to fit together without doing a lot of research, then it becomes a lot more difficult to learn these libraries. Uh, going back to Hackage, um, how, how, do you, how well do you think the libraries age? I mean, a lot of them aren't that old, especially when you compare it to CPEN. But uh, it seems like maybe we have a smaller number of libraries, but they feel more well-constructed, more ready to stand the test of time. Is that the uh, impression you get as well? I guess it's it's kind of hard for me to say with only like four years experience. Uh, a lot of the libraries that we're using regularly, um, I don't really know when they started. I mean, the only real date that I tend to look at in uh, in Hackage is the last upload date, which is usually only a couple of months away because people have to bump upper bounds all the time and things like that. So uh, it seems that most of the libraries we're using are ones that are still actively maintained. And I'm not sure if that's like a requirement of being a good library is that you have to keep maintaining it because ideally you kind of write a lot of these things once and then you just leave them alone because that's it. They solve the problem. They don't need to change anymore. Um, but I haven't really seen that with any of the libraries we're using. I think a lot of these are still changing quite a lot. Speaking of bumping upper bounds, maybe now's a good time to talk about the article you wrote on how I develop with Nix. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Um, I, I don't remember a lot from the article other than it got, it got a lot of attention. Um, Maybe you can uh, just briefly reiterate the advantages you have. There, there seems to be a big overlap with Haskell developers and Nix users. Yeah. So uh, the overlap stems from the fact that this, that Nix itself is, um, its tagline is a purely functional package manager, uh, which obviously appeals to Haskell programs. And the purely functional side of it is that you get a lot of reproducibility in your builds. Things are. Um, a build is just a function of its source code and its dependencies, and as long as those don't change, then the build artifact should be identical. So that's that's already quite nice. Um, but I find Nix is really nice for developing Haskell because it basically gives us um, a, a, a kind of stackage-like environment. 
So Nix comes with a set of packages uh, and libraries that are already kind of, um, this is how you install ASIN or something like that in Nix. So we have all these expressions on how to install things. Uh, but we don't do it like Hackage, where we have multiple different versions. We just have this is the version of ASIN. So whenever you, you're going to depend on something, you're just depending on one version. And because of that, things get a lot simpler and that we can actually make sure that these versions are compatible with each other. So it's very rare that I experience Cabal Hell and things like that because there's no constraints over going, uh, going on and doing some work here. It's just these are the set of versions and they will either build or they won't. But doesn't um, that I just... Find that that, um, I was going to say, doesn't that just move the complexity? Doesn't it just front load it into the, the creation of this this curated package list and making sure that they all are compatible with each other? There are problems there, but um, I feel that the problems come up quicker than they will uh, in this kind of Cabal hell type system. You know, it's very clear, like, when I try and build this library, it wants a version within this range, and we simply are outside that range. So now I can go straight onto GitHub or whatever, give them a pull request, bumping the upper bounds, ideally, uh, if it's trivial, uh, and then just carry on. And I tend to find I spend a lot of less a lot less time worrying about these issues than uh, I used to do with Cabal. A lot of the time, it really does just work, and the latest versions of things do tend to play well with each other quite a lot. Now, some uh, I know that with Nix, you can set it up to basically call your your Cabal file to build things uh, and generate derivations on the fly. But but some people actually use Nix in as a replacement for Cabal dependency solving, essentially. Um, I'm not sure, you know, whether it's, whether it's Hacknix or Cabal to Nix or, uh, or what. Have you experimented with any of those or are you using those? So, um, Cabal to Nix is the one that takes a Cabal file and just, uh, kind of spits out a Nix expression for it. And it's, it's a very simple transformation. We simply have a kind of conventional way of naming packages. So we do a bit of a transformation of the names and then we just, uh, emit this really simple Nix expression. And I use that one all the time. Um, I'm a core contributor to the Nix project. So when a new library comes out on Hackage and I want to use it, the first thing I do is turn it into a Nix expression and put it into the Nix packages repository. Um, so I guess in that sense, I am kind of not really using Cabal to do dependency resolution because I've moved that into Nix itself. Uh, I'm not so familiar with, uh, I think it's Hackage for Nix is the other one that uh, I think is a bit more like a, a Gen two overlay type system where we can put extra packages on top, uh, but I haven't I haven't used that myself. But one thing we are doing, which I think is quite interesting, is we can extend the set of Haskell packages that Nix has to offer with our own Haskell packages. So we kind of look like we're working with things that have been released um, onto Hackage, and we could Cabal install them however we want. But they actually just sit in our local environment. So we have a, a handful of libraries that we use at work that are not yet open sourced, but we're able to still use them as separate libraries and link all of these things together, um, kind of very trivially. So how difficult is it for an organization that wants to use Nix to run their own package database? Uh, that alone is is not particularly difficult, but uh, I still think that Nix is quite young, and if people were actually interested in using this kind of in anger, you're going to have to be willing to work with it. There are things that are simply missing. There are libraries that don't exist on in, in the Nix packages repository. So you're going to need to be willing to actually write the Nix expressions or use Cabal to Nix to generate those. And being young, things do go wrong. You know, you, you maybe you'll pull the latest uh, Nix expressions from GitHub and somebody's accidentally changed something and it's gone and broken something else. And I think you do have to be willing to kind of jump in and try and fix those problems. But that said, I still think that the experience overall is better for me than it was just using Cabal. And even with sandboxes, I still see my colleagues who are still using sandboxes have more problems than I do. So I'm really interested in, in this because I have a bit of a history with, with package managers and I've never, mm -hmm. I've, uh, I've written a lot of code uh, programmatically for package managers and they're all terrible in that regard. Um, what is it like interacting with Nix programmatically? I I really enjoy it. Uh, Nix itself is a, a well-designed language. Um, it's got people who really know how to build languages behind it. Uh, so in that sense, the language itself is pretty solid. You know, we've got uh, lazy evaluation there. 
Uh, it's a very functional language, uh, fairly small syntax, but also all the tools around Nix let you kind of do uh, introspection into these packages quite easily. Uh, so there's a lot of um, binaries that already let you ask questions about your package repository and get the answers that you want. So there's not really this problem of having to parse files with ref and stuff like that. <laughs> well, that's already significantly better than uh, Cabal. I found out recently <laughs> that if you want to um, get metadata about a hackage and you know, through Cabal, you have to write your own mm -hmm. parser. And the, there doesn't exist a library for this unless you yank it out of someone else's library. Yeah, uh, so, <laughs> um, with with these package managers that run their own curated database, like like most Linux package managers do, one issue that I often run into is how out of date they get. Based and there there are usually good reasons for this. They have a vetting system that packages go through, and their goal is is to maintain stability. You know, and they value stability far more than they value cutting edge. What's it like in Nix? How recent do the packages tend to be? What is that process for getting a, a new version or a new package into the database? Mm -hmm. So Nix packages is the main repository itself. And that one, I mean, we're up to like 45,000 commits or something now. And that changes very, very frequently. And um, we tend to track upstream almost as much as we can. Uh, but we also branch off master occasionally, I think uh, two times a year, for stable branches. And those ones tend to change a lot less. The only things we put in there are bug fixes, and we don't tend to bump versions quite as aggressively. Uh, so it's really up to you how up-to-date you want to be. You can track the master branch and uh, live kind of bleeding edge, or you can run the release branches. Or the kind of other thing you can do, is what, which is what we do, is simply have a fork of the package repository and just keep running off that as long as you want. And then eventually you'll maybe bring in a new library and you'll need to update things, and at that point, then we kind of do worry about bringing things up to date. So this is something I I didn't know about Nix. The package repo the the package database repository is itself a is it a Git repository? Mm -hmm. It's a Git repository, oh. and it's just got. I mean, essentially, the package repository is a program in its own right that happens to evaluate to every single possible package you could ever install in the world. And the way it works is because Nix is this lazy language, if you, you know, you only demand things that you want to install, in which case we'll only evaluate those things and actually go out and compile them. So I think this is quite a nice way of modeling a package system because there's no like, is this installed? Has the user selected this? We can simply kind of be optimistic and be like, well, the user probably wants absolutely everything, which is nuts. And that's not the case, but it certainly simplifies things at the packaging level. And then we can just lean back on lazy evaluation to to kind of do the minimum amount of work that's needed. Huh. That's a that is a nice way to use laziness. I wouldn't have thought of that. That's mm -hmm. so the way that the Nix package manager works or the repository works is every package is a thunk essentially, and yep, installing the package is forcing the thunk. Yeah. Huh. And forcing the thunk happens to do a load of side effects and compilation and stuff, and the output of the func is just a directory on your file system. And then Nix knows how to symlink all of these things together into a single environment. Well, I, I as much as I'm excited to hear about uh, Nix getting discussed because I'm a, a big fan, uh, maybe we should get back to the the Haskell side of things. And I know, uh, Rain, you, you had some mathy things that you really wanted to oh, talk I'm about. Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited about the mathy <laughs> things. So I'm equally you, excited. Excellent. <laughs> Chris, you can go get a, get a water or something if you want. We'll be here for a while. <laughs> so you recently, Ollie, you wrote a blog post called A Category for Correct by Construction Serializers and Deserializers. And I want to talk about that. Okay. Uh, there's There have been a few uh, papers. One of them involved the word banana, I think, about sort of isomorphic parsing. Mm -hmm. um, how How did you come about your design how does it compare to some of the prior art so my design is not really my design at all it's uh, pretty much a direct ripoff of the design in the json grammar library on hackage and that's um, a library that gives you a bi-directional way to talk about how to parse and emit json for haskell structures and i saw this at zero hack a couple of weeks ago uh, and I was kind of blown away by the presentation because it was like, that just makes so much sense. Like, why do we have to write these two separate things and hope that we got them both correct? 
and hope that we actually keep them in sync. So I was very interested in seeing if this could be done for binary serialization, because we tend to do quite a lot of that at work. Um, so I really took the, the same idea, which is this kind of um, idea of using a category as your form of composition. And now you can kind of, you can either go from left to right, which might be serializing, or you can go right to left, which would be deserializing. You said that they form a category. What, what category do they form? What are the objects and arrows? So my, my knowledge of category theory is uh, fairly ad hoc. I certainly don't have any real rigorous understanding of it, but I think the objects in this are still the normal objects in the category Hask. So normal Haskell objects. And then the arrows between these objects are arrows where you can either go in one direction and do serialization, and in the other direction you can do deserialization. So in that sense, it's kind of a restriction of the category Hask, where the arrows are now restricted to those that do serialization and carry their own kind of inverse arrangement. So let's maybe talk about a concrete example of this. What uh, what two arrows of this nature might you compose? Uh, what would you what would you use that for? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea is you can kind of decompose any Haskell value, uh, into tuples, right? Um, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're all isomorphic to big long sets of tuples and, uh, sums and products and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so the idea is if you can, if you can do this decomposition of a large data structure into its smaller parts, then you can simply move along the, uh, arrows between the smaller parts and eventually, you will have composed all of those to be an arrow that works with the kind of larger data structure. So, oh, for example, I, I, okay. I work in the blog post with uh, serializing and deserializing just tuples of strings. But the idea is, as long as we, we know how to work with one string, then we can compose these together. And then kind of by free, we know how to work with two strings or three strings or 50 strings. Sure. Okay, so if you have... If you have a product type and you have a serializer for each, uh, it's what's the word? There's like summon, but for products. Anyway, if you have if you have a serializer for each one, you can get a serializer for the product type as a whole. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and by using the lens library, we have this kind of nice vocabulary of how to talk about breaking this large data structure down into its constituent parts, and that's what prisms uh, kind of allow us to do. So that's the idea that I stole quite a lot from JSON Grammar as well, is they, they're using prisms in JSON Grammar, which gives us a nice way to kind of go from ideas that we're already familiar with and just tack on just enough information to do, in my case, bidirectional serialization and deserialization. I didn't really have to invent a large amount to, to get there. So it, it almost sounds like you're you're using a product category here, but there are also co-products, right? Because some types you need the the co-product of two types to be able to serialize mm -hmm. the sum type. So that's I don't know exactly what category it is, but I'd I'd like to figure that out. It sounds like a pretty interesting one. Well, yeah, when you mention product categories and stuff, that's coming closer to kind of the original papers around this. Uh, there's a paper on invertible syntax, I think, that I linked to in the blog post. And they do very much talk about taking products of functors and things like that, uh, which gives you a style that's a lot closer to, it looks a lot closer to applicative functors and things. Uh, but I found that now that we have prisms, it's kind of simple enough to just work with a, a monoid to give us choice between constructors and composition to work with the fields of a single constructor. Um, that seemed to work nicely. But I mean, this is still an idea that I've only just started playing with and I haven't really used it for, for large scale stuff. So I'm curious to see what problems I'm going to kind of encounter next. So what we can do is we can go on Haskell IRC and ask Kale, uh, what, you know, what kind of category this is. And he'll take about 30 seconds to look at it and then he'll just tell us. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure he'll take 30 seconds to tell us and waste the next 30 days of my life with me trying yeah. to figure out what he just said. <laughs> so what do you, is this something that you wrote uh, just to explore the concept? Is this something you plan on putting into use in production? Oh, it very much came out of a production problem. Um, so we have this event stream that captures all modifications that we're doing to a database at work. Um, and we don't really care about putting this in a relational database. So the easiest thing we can do is to just serialize it to binary and shove some binary in the database, and then we deserialize it later. Uh, but we obviously need this stuff to carry on working as our code evolves. So we need a kind of migration system. And what we have so far is about 
3,000 lines, I think, that define old versions of data types and binary serializations. And it was an awful lot of boilerplate for my liking. And I, I worry when there's boilerplate, not only because it makes me type more and it slows me down, but because it's, I don't enjoy writing it, which means I'm probably going to make a lot more mistakes. So I wanted to be able to lean on the compiler here as much as I could to make sure that this pretty crucial code does actually do the right thing. Um, and by kind of unifying serialization and deserialization into one thing, I felt like I can trust this code an awful lot more than if I have to write these two things separately. So when you're doing this sort of mathematical work in Haskell, do you find that you're able to use any of the laws in a in a rigorous way, or do they just, or do you just sort of use them more as as, as guiding principles? Because you might be able hmm. to. There are there are some, you know, if this forms a category, you get the category laws. If it has products, you get some more universality properties and things like that. Are these things that you use uh, to design the library in a in a in a rigorous way? Do you just think about them and, and use them to kind of help and you know help your intuition about how things work? I don't really. I guess I don't really think about the laws too much when I'm working with these things. I'm more interested in what the shape of the computation is going to be. Um, so recently I was playing with this, uh, the querying applicative functor that I've blogged about, which lets you kind of automatically do batch querying. And for that, I knew that we had to have some sort of, uh, some sort of algebraic structure that allows us to have side effects and obviously compose things because we want to build larger programs from smaller programs. But it wouldn't make sense if I could do more queries based on the queries that I've previously done. So because of that, that rules out the choice of a monad. Like I can't use a monad because that would just give me too much power and any chance of kind of statically optimizing this goes out of the window entirely. Uh, but I know that there's a weaker structure that I can use, which is the applicative functor, which still gives me composition and still gives me side effects. So I tend to think about it that way. Like what's the kind of, what are the, the obvious constraints on the problem? where it certainly is not going to have a solution? Uh, and then what tools do I have available that I'm already very familiar with that I might be able to kind of fit this problem into? Uh, but it's not really, yeah, I don't really go from the laws. The laws are kind of a nice consequence and kind of show me that I've probably reached the right abstraction. Um, but that said, I don't ever bother doing proofs, and I probably should. But <laughs> it's It's interesting to me that this is a pretty... A different way of of working mathematically or, or equationally than than other folks have used, you know, Richard Bird and Edward Komet and folks like that. They really do lean a lot on laws when they're doing mm -hmm. these sort of things. And it's interesting that this is a different way where you're really using more of your intuition about the structures and their properties. But it seems to be effective. Yeah. The other thing that I do, which I haven't heard a lot of people talk about is, I mean, a lot of these structures have kind of smaller cases that you can compose together. Uh, applicative functors are especially good for this because you can take the sum of applicatives, you can take the product of them, and you can compose them, which means that when I'm thinking about problems, I can try and break it down into smaller problems and just work out how these things are going to compose. So, for example, with the querying one, there were two things that I kind of obviously needed to do, one of which is know which things are being queried for, and the other one was delivering the results of a query to the, the places where they asked for query results. And it turns out that there are kind of two natural applicative functors that fit in there. One is the const applicative, which lets us collect a list of information or a monoid of information. So that seems to solve the problem of asking for keys because I can just have a, a set or a list of keys or something. And if I want to route the results back, well, if I don't have any results available, then the obvious thing to do is have a function that awaits some results. Well, now we're just talking about the reader applicative functor. So I've kind of got these two things that seem to be solving the problem for me, and I know that I need to use both of them, so I just take the product of them. You take advantage I mean, of the fact that they have products, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I try and, I mean, I don't always break my problems down this way. Sometimes I literally do just start with products and composition and stuff and see what I end up with and maybe try and simplify it afterwards. But I think the key, at least for me, in solving some of these problems is how can I break this problem down into its smallest parts and how can I try and solve these parts individually and then put them all back together and solve the problem in one go at the end. It strikes me that the Richard Bird style of sort of algebraic reasoning is very equational 
he he proves laws and then he uses them to do essentially you know program transformations. This is more algebraic reasoning via diagram chasing. Yeah, I'd say that's that's probably right. Via looking at how things compose and then building up a, a larger structure by following those those compositional arrows and then seeing where that leads you. And I think that's a that's a it's it's almost a dual sort of way of reasoning algebraically about your programs. It's interesting that mm-hmm. you've been successful in this without using the sort of calculational style that, that Bird made so famous. Yeah. Well, to me, it seems like the kind of laziest way to solve problems. <laughs> like, I don't really have to, to think about solving these problems because people have already solved parts of them for me in a more general way. I just have to make sure my toolbox is as organized as it can be, and I just choose the right things, and hopefully they'll, they'll fit together somehow. And if they don't, then that's usually a kind of nice avenue for further research. Like, I know that this bunch of stuff is close to solving the problem, but it's not quite enough. So what don't I know about that's going to let me get to the solution? And then I usually have some kind of avenue of papers that I want to read or something like that. And it seems like this process wouldn't be too difficult to, to formalize if you just drew some arrows and and draw <laughs> some boxes and triangles and <laughs> label label them. It seems yeah. like there's there's it, I, I, what I, I love about this is that it's it's a way of algebraic reasoning that's so different from I mean I I love bird style I love that equational calculational style of reasoning and there has been a lot of research into that this is a very different style but it's still algebraic mm-hmm. but I think it also fits nicer uh, to people who only have a programming background. Mm-hmm. Like as programmers, we're already familiar with the idea of taking existing libraries and working out how to fit them to our problem, and it's a, it's a very similar idea, I think. I mean, um, I, the paper that really kind of opened my eyes to this was the essence of the iterator pattern, which breaks down like a for loop into how you can actually express this in terms of functors and things. Uh, and I found that uh, extremely enlightening. So, Ali, has there uh, is there anything that we haven't covered that you wanted to talk about? Uh, well, perhaps type safety, if we we still have time, because I'm very interested in pushing the type system kind of to its limits, especially in Haskell. Um, the PL Haskell project was my first introduction to working with uh, Richard Eisenberg's Singleton's library, uh, and since then I've been very impressed with what you can do with Singleton's. Let's talk about that. What is singletons? So singleton types are a fairly simple technique to bring information from the value level and move it up to the type level. So uh, natural numbers, for every natural number, there is a single type for them. So we have a type for the natural number 1 and a type for the natural number 10, and each of these types has a single value, which is that number itself. So they give us a nice way to kind of move between the value level and the type level. Um, and I've, I've found myself using this an awful lot recently. So, um, one thing that we're doing at work is we've got a really type safe, uh, publish subscribe system where I have a data type, which mentions all the possible subscription channels that you can subscribe to. And then I have functions that are parameterized on these subscription channels with singletons, which let me determine exactly what type of JSON comes out, depending on what type of subscription channel we're working with. So if I'm looking at the list of all available locations for a business, then I know that it has to return a list of location objects. But if I'm looking at the list of all classes for a customer, then I know that I have to return a list of classes. So rather than just returning, I mean, it's almost going into kind of dependent types territory. Now I know that if this is the subscription channel, then this is the type of JSON that I have to emit, rather than the kind of weaker formulation of if I have a subscription channel, then I have to emit JSON, which doesn't really help me with anything. So I was actually talking to uh, Carter Schoenwald, who's working on a, on a numerical Haskell library, and and I don't I don't think he's using singletons, but I expect he's using something similar. And it's been interesting to me to see how much more dependently typed people are trying to make Haskell, and that seems to be a pretty common thing right now. Yeah, it interests interests me what you actually get when you push more information to the type level. On one hand, I mean, you can take it from my viewpoint, which is I push it into the type level to simply prevent me from making the same mistakes again. So the reason I did the type safe publish subscribe thing was because 
we had bugs there. I was emitting the wrong information on the subscription topic because the compiler simply didn't tell me that I was doing anything wrong. So I assumed that I was probably doing the right thing. So I like to kind of refine types gradually as that area of code becomes more complex. Uh, so the types can give me the guarantees I want. But on the other hand, the more the more you kind of well type these expressions, you restrict the amount of possible solutions. So in an ideal world, then you do have sufficiently smart compilers that can use that information, I guess, to give you the most optimal code. But I'm not really, I mean, I know Cast is doing some really interesting stuff, but I'm not convinced that this applies everywhere. But for me, the big win of moving all this information to the type system is it's just a better form of documentation, really. Um, I could write these things as documentation strings and hope that I read them. But if I do it here, then the documentation in terms of types has to match the reality of the code that I'm actually writing. Well, I think uh, I think we are running out of time here, so we're going to have to wrap up. Um, but thanks, Ollie, for for joining us, and uh, thanks in advance. We're gonna we're gonna put you uh, put some pressure on you uh, being on the show for the next twenty four days of hackage. <laughs> whether you wanna whether you wanna write those or not, the expectation has has been set. Well, to tease people, I guess. Um, the there's been some talk with the next one that we're going to have a bit more of a kind of theme to it uh, so maybe I'll spend a week looking at some of the uh, libraries that are around typing so singletons and things like that and then maybe another one working around numeric problems or something uh, all ideas at the moment but I'm sure there'll be something because I know that people aren't going to leave me alone until I do it You've been listening to The Haskell Cast, Episode 8 with Ollie Charles, recorded on June 22nd, 2014. For links and notes from the podcast, visit www.haskellcast.com. Mm-hmm.